The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When John the Baptist heard in prison of the works of the Christ, he sent his disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus said to them in reply, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. As they were going off, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Then why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Amen, I say to you. Among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The Gospel of the Lord. We have extra space in the front of the church today because we're waiting for something. Specifically, we're waiting for someone, and more specifically, a group of someone. We have our famous actors and actresses over here who, after Mass, will be acting out the appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe to St. Juan Diego. The Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe is tomorrow. We are anticipating it today after Mass so that more people can participate in the marvelous dramatization that our young people put on. Every year this has become a long-standing tradition at the Shrine now, going back uh, at least eight years. And the creating of the space in the front for the dramatization is also a reminder that the very essence of the time of Advent is a certain creation of space in our hearts and in our lives. And it is a creation of space with regard to something we are looking forward to. And we want to pause on that. Because as we have been noting as we've moved through these weeks of Advent, especially on the Sundays, there is a very definite sequence of things that happen 
as the church moves through this holy season. And the key to understanding that sequence is paying attention to the collects, the opening prayers for Sunday Mass. And so once again, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot and ask you what you agreed to when you said amen. But it is important that we start there. But in the context of what we've been doing and agreeing to, making our own over all of these now three weeks of Advent. On the first Sunday of Advent, we ask for the grace to be resolute, to be firmly committed to running forth to meet Christ when he comes with good deeds in our hand. Note, not that we have a desire to do so, not that we have nice thoughts about maybe getting around to it, but that we are gifted by heaven with that great grace that we commit ourselves to doing exactly that. In other words, when Christ comes, we are committed to being ready to move quickly toward him and not to go empty-handed, but to bring the fruit of righteous deeds. Our second week built on that and so last Sunday, as we gathered here, we asked the Lord for the grace to help us remove those obstacles, those things that would prevent us from moving forward. So note how they build. I am resolved to move and to move freely. In order to do that, I have to attend to what might be holding me back. I have to attend to what might be filling my hands so that I'm coming to the Lord with the wrong things in the first place. And now, having prayed through these moments of being resolved to move and moving to open up the way forward, we hear in our collect, our opening prayer today, asking the Lord to look at the energy with which we are preparing ourselves to celebrate the mystery of our Lord's birth, and in that light, to give us a very particular, a very singular grace, which is the grace of reaching out our hands and receiving the joy of the great salvation that he's won for us. What a marvelous image that is, the asking of heaven for the grace not merely to be forgiven, not merely to be saved, strange as it is to say merely to those words, but to embrace the joy of what it is to be saved, to embrace and receive the full joy of what it is to be forgiven, to embrace and receive the joy that the nearness of Christ brings. And it's vitally important, we Christians all too often speak of Jesus in many ways, and yet we all too regularly miss the point that life is more than a mere endurance contest and that there is a fundamental joyfulness that should mark the life of a Christian, even and arguably especially 
in moments of hardness. It's what sets us apart. It's what sets the one who knows Jesus Christ apart from the one who doesn't. All know hardship. All know struggle. All know moments of opportunity in this world. Simply experiencing those things is no credit to us. The issue is, how do we experience them? What shapes and marks and characterizes our experience of these things? And here we note that in a world so readily, so continually, so easily robbed of its joy, we ask heaven for the grace to receive that joy, to stretch out our hands to it. But the prayer continues. The prayer continues because it recognizes the fundamental weakness that we have. And so it continues that receiving it isn't enough. And we sit there and you say, Father, receiving joy, what could be better than that? And the answer is keeping it. Keeping it. And that is the key, not just receiving, not just knowing the joy, but keeping the joy. And just think about that for a moment. These experiences that we all know, how easy it can be to be having a marvelous day. And then out of nowhere, something happens that poisons the experience. And it often doesn't take much, does it? A little frustration, an unexpected inconvenience, the wrong word at the wrong time. That person who always tends to jump on my last nerve, showing up when my last nerve is vulnerable. And what happens, and the joy so easily comes crashing down, and it's hard to recover from it. Think of all those moments of life that you've lived, which have been pleasant and been happy, but all too brief. And part of the brevity was we are too quick to move away from it. We're in a hurry to get to the next thing, the next experience. And so, so much of what is good and right comes and passes through our hands, but we don't hold on to it. We take it for granted and we let it pass away. And so the second part of the prayer is not just that we know the joy of so great a salvation, but that we always celebrate it. That we always rejoice in it with solemn worship and glad rejoicing, which is one of those marvelously curious expressions as opposed to sad rejoicing, I guess. But note this idea of glad rejoicing, not just mere pleasantness. Not just worldly happiness, but something deep and something constant. And in fact, that there must be a note of joyfulness about our worship. Or our worship is in danger of being an empty thing. It may be authentic, it may be technically correct, but it will be merely mechanical. Without a certain life-giving joyfulness. Because the essence of our worship 
is we are grateful for, appreciative of, and we are rejoicing in what God has done for us. And that should mark our prayer. That should mark our gathering. That should mark our singing. That should mark what we do. Otherwise, the question becomes, what are we doing in the first place? Note how marvelous this sequence is. Let us be resolved to move when he comes, but let us get the obstacles out of the way. And now today we lift our eyes to the goal and say, and his arrival is a good thing, a great thing that I'm looking forward to. And I want the joy of that in my life. And I don't want it to come into my heart for a cup of coffee and then leave. I want it to abide. I want to learn how to hold on to it, to cling to it, to live it. And my friends, simply put, bluntly put, what is more important than that? There is so much in this life, in this world, that wants to take real joy away from us. There is so much that wants to make us settle for being less, for living less. And the gospel calls out to us and says the Christian must be about more than that. And part of the more is this fundamental joyfulness that comes when we understand just how great a gift this really is. This is where the question of St. John the Baptist coming to Jesus fits in our readings today. The Baptist, as we know, is the great herald of the Lord, that one who announces and prepares for his coming. And the Baptist has been arrested, and he is imprisoned, and the days of his life are coming to an end. And yet his disciples still cling to him, are still near him. And the Baptist, faithful to his mission, reminds them, I am not the one. And clearly the implication is they ask him, well, then who is it? And John, rather than simply saying, you remember the guy I baptized? Says, go to him. Now you ask him the question. Go to him. And you ask him the question. And in putting it this way, this movement of the Baptist disciples captures something necessary for our own hearts. Because sooner or later, our hearts have to turn to the Lord and say, are you the one? Are you the one I've been waiting for? Are you the one? Because saying yes to that, receiving that yes, is what makes the difference. And so they come. Are you the one for whom we are waiting, or is there some other guy? Because we live in a world that likes to keep its options open, that likes to think there's always some other guy. There's always some other thing. There's always some other opportunity. And as long as we live in the world of maybe there's somebody else, we never make a decision. It's false freedom. Keeping our options open forever is a recipe never to move. 
on the one hand, theoretically, I'm free. I can choose anything. But on the other hand, I never use my freedom because I never make a choice. And so here they come. So, so the Baptist says, no, you go and you ask him. You stop keeping your options open. You go there and you say. And note how Jesus responds. He could have simply said, yes, I'm the one. But he doesn't. He allows them to remain with him so that they know him. The reading is brief, but it implies a significant amount of time. Because he says, you go back to John and tell him what you found. Based on what you saw and what you heard. In other words, I'm not going to give you a soundbite. I'm not going to just look at you and give you the easy answer and say, yes, I'm the guy. You stay with me, and you'll see. What will you see? The blind have their eyes opened, and they see again. And the deaf have their ears open to true and real hearing. And the lame and the limited suddenly move with a freedom they never had before. And note, as the Lord is saying this to them, have you seen how the brokenness of the world is changed by my presence? Have you seen the joy in the face of the one who was sightless, suddenly seeing again? Have you seen the way the one who could not hear, hear smiles at the fact that sound now fills his hearing? Have you witnessed not just that the lame can walk? That's just news. But did you see their reaction? To move without pain and to show it on their face. Did you see that? Note how wonderful this answer is. Stay with me long enough not just to hear about me. Stay with me long enough to see the impact I make. And that's your answer. That's your answer. Stay with me and see the difference I make. And note, he says, and not first in your life. See the difference I make in the lives of so many others. And we see here where we become obstacles to the spread of the gospel when we live a joyless form of Christianity. Because people look at us and they fail to see the difference that Christ makes. And that visible difference is never merely healing. It is never merely the miraculous, odd as it is to say that. It is the change of character, the joy in living that is the ultimate fruit of that. What good is it that the blind man can see if he still li li lives a life marked by sadness and frustration? What good is it for the lame to run free if they don't know where they're going in the first place? And so as the Lord says this, 
He is holding out the fact that I make a difference. Be with me and see that difference. Experience that difference. And see that it is the poor who have the news of a joyous victory proclaimed to them. Because that word, good news, is not the equivalent of my uncle finally got a job. The good news that we hear there is the news that is communicated to the people, especially to the upper classes, that something victorious has happened. And note Jesus saying this, into the lives of those who have no right to expect a victory, the word of victory has come into the lives of those who have grown up thinking of themselves as anything but successful. News of a victory for them has come. Note how remarkable that is. That those who have been laboring under a lack, under a need, suddenly find that Victory comes to them, too, and even to them first. What a difference that is. He doesn't say they're materially wealthy, but he does say that there is a wealth of good news in their heart, and that wealth of victory in their heart produces a certain joyfulness even in the experience of lack a joyfulness that many who dwell in palaces will never know. So he goes, after you've been with me, you can go back and tell John we found the guy. And this is why. Because we know now. And note this, now they know not because John pointed Jesus out. Now they know because John sent them to Jesus, but now they know Jesus. And they don't know Jesus through John now. They know Jesus by drawing near to him. And imagine the excitement with which they can go back to their master. And the joy he would feel at knowing his work is complete and successful. Because those who followed him now belong to Christ. This is why then Jesus, after these men leave, turns to the great crowd that was with him, others who went out to the desert to hear John preach, and he says to them, what were you looking for? What made you go out there? Did you go out there because John was just another good speaker? Did you go out there just because he was a popular guy who told everybody what they wanted to hear? That's what a reed swaying by the wind is. The world is full of that guy. Let me see what's popular, and that's my message. Let me see what will get a response, and that's what I'll say. But that wasn't John. John stood straight, and he spoke one truth, and that truth didn't change. That's why you went to him because he spoke in a way that was different than how everybody else speaks. He wasn't interested in being popular with you. He wasn't interested in pleasing you, because he was interested in helping you know salvation. 
That's why you went. Did you go out into the desert to see a guy who was well-dressed and comfortable? The world is full of that guy, Jesus says. Often they're in palaces setting themselves up against over everybody else. You know, our modern image of that might be the Instagram influencer showing you that carefully curated fake version of life that could be yours and how much better mine is than yours. And Jesus says, but you didn't go out there for that. You could get that anywhere. You couldn't get that in the desert. You don't get that with John. Because John wasn't interested in being comfortable. John wasn't interested in arranging things so that they're pleasant for him. John was interested in being about what he needed to be about. And that's why you went. You went out to him, Jesus says, because you knew in your heart there's something prophetic about this man. And now Jesus turns and tells us what he thinks of John. And he says, oh, and John is a prophet. And you did go to see a prophet, but you went to see somebody who's more than any prophet. Imagine that, more than Isaiah more than Elijah, more than Jeremiah, more than any of the prophets, that's who you went to see. And what is the Lord saying? You had an expectation. You were looking for something. You went there because what you were looking for was there. And that one who is more than a prophet is more than a prophet because the other prophets announced a promise. The other prophets made predictions, but not this one. This one says, the promise is now fulfilled. The prediction has now come to pass. Isaiah saw the face of the Savior only in visions. John saw his face for real and baptized him. What a remarkable moment. What a remarkable dignity this is. And now Jesus says, and that one to whom you went because of the power of his speaking and the quality of his teaching points you to me. So follow the pointing finger and come to me. Because everything you went out to John for is fulfilled in me. You don't need to go to the desert now. You don't need to hunt now. I'm right here. It sounds so simple when we put it that way. And yet how easy it is for us not to know what to do when the Lord is right here with us. How easy it is for us to keep seeking after lesser things and lesser consolations when the Lord is right here. And that's why we have the Sunday of the mysterious pink candle. We don't have the pink candle because the church got bored and said maybe we'll just change it up for a week. We have the pink candle because in an earlier age of our tradition, 
the time of Advent was marked by a fairly heavy regimen of fasting and discipline, much like Lent used to be as well. And that movement of literally physically sacrificing to prepare ourselves as a sign of our spiritually making ourselves ready can exhaust us. And recognizing that, recognizing that the church built in a break on the third Sunday of Advent, where it relaxed the fasting, it relaxed the penance. And why? Because when we endure too much, when we strive too much, we forget to look up. And we forget to remember why we're doing things in the first place. So by changing the color, the church sent a signal that on this day, we look up and we remember for whom we're waiting. And we remember why that's good. And we look again to the joy that we expect when we are with him. And we allow that joy to reinvigorate our hearts so that we move forward over the last stretch toward Christmas with a renewed energy a renewed swiftness, a renewed gracefulness. In a sense, it's an anticipation of the joy of Christmas a little bit ahead of time. So that having anticipated its joy, when the day finally comes, we are indeed ready and willing and able to rejoice fully, not just for a day, but with a touch of its permanence, dwelling in our hearts. So my friends, in just a few minutes, right here on this altar, this same Jesus Christ who makes the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame to run free is going to be here with you and me on this altar. And after the consecration, and after we stand and pray the Our Father, and after we exchange peace and we're kneeling again, I'm going to tell you to look up. Look up at that moment. Don't just bow your heads. Don't close your eyes. Look up. Because I'm going to be quoting John the Baptist, that one who came to announce the Lord. And I'm going to say, in the words of John the Baptist, Behold which means take a good look. It means open your eyes and really see. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And note, blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Happy are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. The idea is to look up, to see him, and to let the heart be quickened with a joy-filled anticipation at being able to come forward and meet him, and then come forward, and then stretch out your hands. And remember that prayer, because we're asking the Lord to help us stretch out our hands to receive the joy that comes with his presence. And that is exactly what we do in this great sacrament. Would that we receive that joy and would that we hold on to it and would that our gathering Sunday after Sunday 
be marked by and animated by that joy, that joy of longing to receive him and that joy of knowing we already have. Amen.